I'm Dr. Fernandez Falcon, and this is the Hospital Podcast. Today, I'm going to talk to you about gastrointestinal hemorrhage or GI bleed. So, first, with the classification, I find useful the clinical classification presented in the Cecil Internal Medicine book, which divides GI bleeds into overt or occult. Those are self explanatory. And it further divides the overt GI bleeds into upper and lower. So going with the first item is going to be the overt GI bleed in the upper um, subclassification. And the definition is the source of this bleed is going to be proximal to the ligament of traits. So how many of these we can expect? In terms of prevalence for the non baricial it's going to be around 250,000 to 400,000 cases a year, so pretty significant. And this represents around 30 to 100 cases per 100,000 admissions per year. The incidence is going to be around 40% of all GI bleed admissions for the upper again. And the prognosis, which is, I think, relevant to us, is um, 80% of these uh, upper GI bleed are going to be self-limited. Another element is going to be uh, for the prognosis is going to be the mortality. So it is described as 2.1% overall for the non baricial And um, in other way, it's termed as 35 to 7% of the overall mortality for the uh, all the GA bleeds. Um, also in terms of mortality, the highest is going to be for the variceal secondary to portal uh, hypertension, so secondary to esophageal varices is going to be around 15, 15%, 1, 5. Um, and it creeps up over the next two years after the first episode to around 40% mortality from complications of the uh, liver disease, something to take into consideration. The peptic ulcers are going to have less than 5% of the mortality from all the upper GA bleed. Continuing with mortality, there's going to be increased mortality for those patients that are over 60 years old or those patients that have the onset of the GA bleed after they were admitted for another reason. In terms of a positive spin, uh, for those patients presenting to the emergency department 48 hours after the episode of upper GI bleed, overt upper GI bleed, the re-bleed is going to be really low. So those in general have a good prognosis. Going with the clinical manifestations, 50% of the patients are going to present with hematemesis and melena together. 30% of the patients are going to present with only hematemesis. 20% are going to present with only melena. Take into consideration that for melena, you only need one episode of bleed with 50 to 100 milliliters. Um, 10 to 15% of the patients are going to present with hematochesia from an overt upper source. And this is important in terms of these patients. Typically, you have to pay a little bit more attention because to have hematochesia from an upper source, you're going to have to have at least one liter, so 1,000 milliliters or more. Um, in terms of the etiology, the number one etiology is going to be the peptic ulcer, either gastric or duodenal. Those are going to represent around 40% of the cases. 
The second is going to be the gastric or esophageal varices, secondary to portal hypertension, so secondary to liver disease. And these are going to represent around 10 to 20% of the cases. Number three is going to be erosive esophagitis with around 10% of the cases. Number four is going to be mallory waste with 5 to 10% of the cases. Number five is going to be vascular anomalies, so angiodysplasias or angiotasias with around 7% of the cases. Uh, number six is going to be erosive gastritis with less than 5% of the cases. And uh, number seven is going to be gastric neoplasms with uh, around 1% of the cases. Other causes are going to be much more rare. Uh, I want to bring up the aortoenteric fistula that can present up to 48 hours after uh, abdominal aortic graft, and it's around 2% of uh, the complications, represents around 2% of the complications of that particular surgery. Um, there's also the possibility of hemobilia from a hepatic tumor, or from penetrating trauma, or from an angioma. And uh, another rare one is going to be pancreatic malignancy. So those are considerations in terms of etiology. For uh, history that you have to take, you have to take a social history um, and mainly alcohol uh, intake history. And then for past medical history, uh, medication history, in particular for NSAIDs uh, ingestion. And for diseases, um, a history of liver disease or a history of a feeding tube, which is going to be also present in the physical examination. Uh, typically, um, but a long-standing feeding tube or nasogastric tube um, constitute also a risk in terms of uh, causing erosive esophagitis and um, overt upper GI bleed. So now to treatment. First thing is resuscitation or stabilization of the patient. The first thing to do is to position two large IV lines um, from 18 to 14 gauge, the biggest that you can place, the better. You're gonna begin administering the patient 0.9 saline or ringer lactate. And you're gonna go ahead and type and cross match uh, for two to four units up front of packed red blood cells. Um, the goal is to maintain the hemoglobin uh, from seven to eight grams per deciliter, but also understanding that um, is the hemoglobin that you're gonna uh, have up from, particularly for a, um, acute bleed, is not going to represent what you really have. It's gonna take between 12 and 24 hours to um, represent the blood loss. You should go ahead and understand that one unit of packed red blood cells should increase the hemoglobin one gram per deciliter. And there are two strategies in regards to this. Um, you have a restrictive strategy that um, has a target um, hemoglobin over seven so you should transfuse below seven and this strategy um, has better 45 day uh, mortality and lower re-bleed incidence the other strategy for particularly a massive bleed causing shock is to uh, go ahead and try to get uh, a target of 9 to 10 grams per deciliter of hemoglobin. Other measures, um, 
you're gonna need to transfuse platelets if these are below 50,000 because this is an active lead. Um, in terms of aspirin and clopidogrel, um, you should transfuse platelets regardless of the count if you have a chronic administration of either aspirin or clopidogrel for a patient that is bleeding that has an overt upper GA bleed. You will consider fish frozen plasma and or factor for prothrombin complex for those patients that um, have a massive bleed that is uh, requiring multiple transfusions and for those patients that have an INR that is more than 2.5. You will consider iraducizumab for those patients that have been treated with Davitragen uh, to revert the action. And you will also consider andesanect alpha for those patients that have been treated with apixaban or rivaxobaram. Another thing to consider in terms of uh, the resuscitation stabilization will be endotracheal intubation for those either with a massive bleed, with severe hematemesis, that are not protecting the airway as they should, or you have concerns that the, the bleed is so massive that they will not be able to uh, protect the airway and not aspirate, or those with an altermental status. After initial resuscitation or stabilization, what you're gonna want to do is triage these patients, and you're gonna divide them in two categories, high risk and low risk. The high risk category are going to be those that have active hemorrhage that despite fluid resuscitation remain with a systolic blood pressure of less than 100 or a heart rate of more than 100. So remember the 100 threshold. Also those that have comorbidities, cardiovascular disease, liver disease, renal disease, any oncologic disease or coagulopathy. And those patients that have hematemesis or blood in the nasogastric aspirate. Or those patients that have hematochesia for the reasons that we described below, that you require more than 1,000 milliliters of acute blood loss to actually have hematochesia from an upper source. Those patients, you're going to go ahead and um, move them to an ICU bed and perform an upper endoscopy within 2 to 12 hours. The only reason to delay this will be acute coronary syndrome. Then for the patients that have moderate or low risk, which are going to be all the other patients, so basically those patients that after fluid resuscitation have a systolic blood pressure of more than 100 or a heart rate of less than 100, or have no comorbidities of the ones that we listed, or have no hematemesis, or have no hematochesia, all those moderate to low risk patients, you're going to want to place them in a general bed. And um, you are going to need to do an upper endoscopy then within 12 to 24 hours of admission. The upper endoscopy then. The objectives of the upper endoscopy are first to identify the source. Second, to provide hemostasis. The provision of hemostasis is going to be done either by injection, 
which is going to be injection of epinephrine locally or a sclerosin agent. Then the other way will be for uh, or by thermal coagulation, which is done by a multipolar or a bipolar heater. And then um, it can be done by mechanical compression, which is going to be performed uh, using bands or clips. When all three strategies, injection, thermal coagulation, and mechanical compression are used, 95% of uh, effectivity is achieved. Even more so, using uh, all three strategies, injection, thermal coagulation, and mechanical compression, but uh, doing the um, hemostasis guided by the Doppler probe, further diminishes the 30-day re-bleed incidence. After um, identifying the source and performing the hemostasis, what you're going to want to do is determining the risk of the re-bleed. And I think that an easy, straightforward way to go about doing this is to go back and uh, remember all the negative prognostic factors for uh, re-bleed so, and inverting them, right? So those patients that are less than 60 years old, in particular those that have good social support, so they will have good follow-up or access to care, and have no cardiovascular or liver or renal or oncologic disease or coagulopathy, also that had no hemodynamic impact uh, secondary to their bleed and uh, did not require transfusion, and on the endoscopy have an ulcer that has a clean base or their bleed was secondary to a malary waste tear or esophagitis or a gastritis, those are going to have less than 5% risk of re-bleed. So after the upper endoscopy, you could deceive them from the emergency department or a general bed. All other patients after the upper endoscopy are going to require 24 to 48 hours of observation in a general bed. Now, a different way to determine the risk of re-bleed is going to be looking at the, at the endoscopic astigmata and the Ruckel scoring system. So once you get the report from the endoscopy, you're going to look at either the presence or, of active arterial bleeding, that is going to mask, uh, mark sorry, a risk of re-bleed of 80 to 90% and a risk of re-bleed after hemostasis of 15 to 30%, so the highest. So active arterial bleeding is one of the very relevant endoscopic stigmata that you have to read or pay attention from the report of the endoscopy. Another one is going to be the non-bleeding visible vessel that is going to mark a risk of re-bleed of 40 to 50% and a risk of re-bleed after hemostasis, again, the same as the active arterial bleeding, 15 to 30%. Next to pay attention will be the adherent clot. That is going to mask, uh, mark a risk of re-bleed of 30 to 35%, but only a risk of re-bleed after hemostasis of 0 to 5%.
Similar is going to be the oozing without other astigmata, which is going to be a 10 to 20% risk of rebleed, but again, a 0 to 5% risk of rebleed after hemostasis. So if they have an adherent clot or oozing without other astigmata, those are better signs in the report on the endoscopy. So lower risk of rebleed because of the endoscopic estimata that was seen in the um, endoscopy. A clean ulcer base is the best that you can expect with a risk of rebleed that is really low at 3%. So to put it in other words, if you're looking at the endoscopic report and you're going to take into consideration the estigmata, if they have an ulcer that has an active arterial bleed, or a non-bleeding visible vessel, or an adhering clot, or it's a variceal bleed, or if the patient has a duodenal posterior location, or this ulcer is large, those are three new markers, the variceal bleed, the duodenal location posterior in the large ulcer, you're going to want to put those patients in the ICU or the step-down unit after the upper endoscopy and at least observe them for 72 hours. And since I named it before, I'm going to refer to the Rockall scoring system for the upper gastrointestinal bleeding. Um, this takes into consideration age, um, shock, so pulse rate more or less than 100, and systolic blood pressure more or less than 100 systolic. Um, it also takes into account the presence of comorbidities. It takes into account the endoscopic astigmata that which has a name. And it takes into account also the diagnosis and gives uh, points for those. So basically the patient is gonna have more points for 60 to 79 years old and many more points for more than 80 years old the patient is going to have more points for shock present. The patient is going to have more points for ischemic heart disease, cardiac failure, and other major illnesses, or renal failure, hepatic failure, and metastatic cancer. The patient is going to have also more points for all the negative uh, endoscopic astigmata that we just named, and um, even more points for uh, the presence of malignant lesions. So the more points the higher Rockall scoring system, the more negative outcome that you can expect. Last but not least, the medical therapy. So the first stop is gonna be the acid suppression therapy or the acid inhibitory therapy. Those patients that have high risk astigmata, as we discussed uh, before, they are going to achieve a lower risk of re-bleed by being um, admitted and treated with acid suppression therapy. And the way to do this is high dose IV PPI in bolus and continuous infusion after that. And it could be esomeprazole or pantoprazole at 80 um, milligrams of uh, bolus in um, with eight milligrams per hour of continuous infusion for the first 72 hours. So again, it's omeprazole or pantoprazole at 80 milligram bolus and then continuous infusion at eight milligrams per hour for 72 hours. 
and then those patients with low risk astigmata or no astigmata can have oral PPIs, which are going to be esomeprazole, pantoprazole, omeprazole, lansoprazole, or dexlansoprazole. And uh, then again, uh, you can use esomeprazole or pantoprazole or omeprazole at 40 uh, milligrams BID, or you can use lansoprazole or dexlansoprazole at 30 to 60 milligrams, either QDAY or VAD. To consider is the octreotide, a continuous IV infusion of 100 micrograms bolus plus 50 to 100 micrograms per hour could be used or should be used in all patients with known liver disease to diminish the splagnate perfusion and in time diminish the um, bleed. Other treatments um, that are used, intra-arterial embolization, that is going to be used for ulcers that um, ulcers and geomas and malory waste tears that fail endoscopic hemostasis and have high perioperative risk so they will not go through surgery or you could use tips um, for the variceal hemorrhage that fail endoscopic hemostasis now for the overt GI bleed that has a source below the ligament of traits called lower GI bleed or that defines lower GI bleed. 95% of uh, these cases, the source is located in the colon. The overt lower GI bleed represents one third of the patients admitted for um, GI bleed. It has a more benign course is less likely to present with shock or orthostasis. Less than 20% of the patients presents with those. And it's also less likely to require transfusions. Less than 40% of the patients require transfusions. And the spontaneous cessation of the bleeding occurs pretty much the same at 75% uh, of the cases. The mortality is less than 4%. In terms of the etiology, we're going to divide in uh, less than 50 years of age, which is likely to have a source in infectious colitis, anorectal disease, or inflammatory bowel disease, or those patients more than 50 years of age, which are likely to have either diverticulosis, injectaceous, malignancy, or ischemia. Um, there is also an increased risk of uh, GI, lower GI bleed uh, with uh, the use of aspirin, non-aspirin, antiplatelet agents, and NSAIDs. Um, in terms of the source, the verticulosis is uh, the most common cause. Um, hemorrhage occurs in 3-5% to of all patients with diverticulosis. More than 95% of the cases require less than four units of blood transfusion. Bleeding subsides spontaneously in 80% of these patients, but it may recur up to a four of those patients, so 25% of those patients. Um, then injectaceous, they represent 5% of the lower GI bleed overt bleed. Most often are seen in the cecum and the ascending colon. They are most common in patients over 70 years of age and uh, those with chronic renal failure. 
in the younger patients are going to be more frequently present in the small intestine. And six uh, percent of the people over sixty years old have um, injectaceous. Um, another cause, neoplasms. They represent seven percent of all the lower GI bleed. Um, to consider is that after endoscopic removal of colonic polyps, the bleeding may occur up to two weeks in uh, 0.3 to 3% of the patients. And half of those cases in which the bleeding occur will require uh, colonoscopy to further exert uh, hemostasis. In um, terms of inflammatory bowel disease, uh, producing lower GI bleed is uh, especially ulcerative colitis. Um, for anorectal disease, producing lower GI bleed is going to be hemorrhoids or fissures. Hemorrhoids are the source in 10% of all the patients admitted for lower GI bleed. Rectal ulcers are around 8% of all the patients admitted for lower GI bleed. And these usually present in the elderly or debilitated patients with constipation. Ischemic colitis as a source for lower GI bleed is going to be uh, presenting in older patients, particularly those that have known atherosclerotic disease. Um, on up to 5% of the patients after surgery for ileo uh, aortic or abdominal aortic aneurysm. And if uh, we talk about younger patients presenting uh, with a source of lower GI bleed from ischemic colitis, these are going to be patients that are going to have either vasculitis or coagulation disorders or chronically on estrogen therapy. And um, one to consider is also in patients that do long-distance running. Other rare um, sources of uh, lower GI bleed um, are going to be radiation-induced proctitis that can develop month or two years after pelvic radiation. So always keep it in the back of your mind to ask for um, in terms of past medical history. Endoscopy typically will reveal rectal uh, telangiectasias. Another um, core, another rare source will be acute infectious colitis. And others that are even more rare are going to be the vasculitic ischemia, the solitary rectal ulcer, the NSAID-induced ulcers in the small bowel or the right colon, the small bowel diverticuli, which are extremely rare, and uh, colonic varices. Going into diagnosis, the first thing that you should do will be the exclusion of an upper tract source, particularly in patients with hemodynamic compromise. Um, an upper endoscopy should be performed in these patients, particularly those presenting with a hematochesia that, as we said before, are likely to have a massive loss of more than one liter suddenly. Um, you could perform anoscopy and sigmoidoscopy and this is going to be typically the choice for healthy patients with anemia under uh, age 45 with small volume bleed and this is to look for evidence of anorectal disease and inflammatory bowel disease or infectious colitis. All patients over 45 years old should have a colonoscopy 
So the colonoscopy timing, timing is controversial. Um, colonoscopy within 24 hours did not reduce the length of stay, rebleeding, or mortality. And for patients with stable vital signs and whose lower gastrointestinal bleeding appears to have stopped, more than 75% of the patients consider that, the colonoscopy can be performed electively within 24 to 60, uh, th 36 hours of admission, sorry, after a previous resuscitation and bowel cleansing. Um, less than 25% of the patients are going to have signs of continued active bleed and will require an earlier colonoscopy within 12 to 24 hours. And so now going into how to prepare these patients, um, oral administration of colonic lavash solution 4 to 8 liters of golightly or colightly or new light over 2 to 5 hours uh, will allow for the site of bleeding to be identified in 70 to 85 percent of the patients and a high risk lesion will be identified uh, and treated on up to 25 percent of the patients Another option for uh, diagnostic um, workup to locate the site of uh, bleeding will be the nuclear bleeding scans and the angiography. These strategies should be used in patients with massive bleeding manifested by continued hemodynamic instability and hematochesia despite resuscitative efforts and in whom colonoscopy hemostasis was, as, was unsuccessful. And then, multi-detector CT and geography is preferred to technician-label red blood cell scanning to detect the active arterial bleeding and to help localize bleeding to the small intestine right colon or left colon. Once the site of bleeding is identified by either nuclear bleeding scans or angiography, embolization can be performed to stop the bleeding. So recapping, hemostasis can be achieved by multiple um, endoscopic methods by colonoscopy, further uh, control of the bleeding if failed uh, by the colonoscopy will be the intraarterial embolization and the surgical treatment is reserved for patients with ongoing bleeding that requires more than six units of blood within 24 hours or more than 10 total units in whom attempts to endoscopic or angiographic therapy failed. To finish, I hope that this was useful and I thank you for listening. Goodbye.